Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. A lot of news out of Washington, D.C. today on the legal front. I mean, we started off the day, it uh, looks like President Trump faces an August 2023 trial in the classified documents case. So we've got some clarity there. Uh, then just breaking recently, Hunter Biden to plead guilty to tax charges. So we want to get to the, the bottom of this news coming out of Washington. Nick Ackerman, former assistant special Watergate prosecutor, joins us. Nick, let's start with uh, the news first on, on President Trump. It, it, if nothing else, it's he's going to receive a special. A, a speedy trial, if you will. I mean, this is happening very quickly. Yeah, no, I mean, Florida, the Southern District of Florida is known for its rocket dockets, <clears throat> and clearly <laughs> he's on there. Um, and I think it answers a lot of questions that people were concerned about with this particular Judge Cannon, who was a Trump appointee, that somehow she would drag this out and delay it for Trump. That is not going to happen. I think one of the overriding themes that comes out of our news this morning is really the rule of law and how it has been enforced with both of these developments today. One, you've got a Trump appointee as a judge who is moving this case along and bringing it to trial. Uh, and two, you've got the Hunter Biden a guilty plea uh, that was done and overseen by a former Trump um, appointee as U.S. attorney in Delaware, who was purposely kept on in order to deal with this matter. And he had the final ultimate decision as to how it would be taken care of. Um, the attorney general kept himself out of it for fear of some kind of a conflict between the fact that he was appointed by President Biden um, and he would be making the decision. Instead, he delegated it completely to this Trump-appointed uh, um, U.S. attorney. Uh, and in the same way, um, the decision to indict Donald Trump on the uh, classified document case was delegated uh, to a special prosecutor that uh, was totally out of the politics um, and was removed from uh, the attorney general. So I think today was a good day for the rule of law. Mm -hmm. So, Nick, has the Biden administration responded to either case yet? I uh, know, and there's no reason for them to. I mean, they have should have absolutely nothing to do with either case. It's important that they keep their distance uh, and that the public understands uh, that the decisions being made on this case are being made by totally independent individuals, whether they're the prosecutors or the judges. So, all right, Nick, let's, I guess, uh, focus on a pres presumably what is the more important uh, case here. What is your expectation? I mean, this is going only going to be, they announced a two-week trial, so that seems very expeditious, if nothing else. What do you, how do you expect this to play out? Oh, I, I think it's likely to play out just the way she's got it set up. I mean, there may be a little bit of a delay in here, um, but it, this is not a difficult case. Um, it's fairly straightforward. The number of classified documents, I think, is somewhere around 30 that are at issue here. Um, there's testimony by witnesses. There's going to be pretrial motions, all of which are, 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 for the most part, as far as I can tell, are pretty frivolous and will take no time to dispose of. So there's no reason why this case can't be put on trial in August. Hmm. I mean, this judge is 
spot on. This is the way the case ought to be handled. Nick, are, should we expect a plea deal from President, former President Trump's camp? Is that something that we should expect, or, or do you think he prefers or he should go to trial? Well, I think he's a fool to go to trial because the evidence, at least as it's set forth in the indictment, is extraordinarily um, powerful. Um, and his statements, even his statement last night on Fox News, he keeps digging himself in deeper to this and creating more fodder for the prosecution in the case. Um, the best thing that I would advise any client to do under these circumstances is to somehow I get a plea deal. But knowing Donald Trump, I'd say that's pretty unlikely. How does this affect the election? Well, that's the whole point. If this case is done by early September, um, it's not going to affect the election at all. I mean, he if he's convicted, um, you know, good luck to the Republican Party if they want to nominate somebody for president who's convicted for uh, mishandling and obstructing um, classified documents. I mean, I just don't see that happening right. here. Um, so I think it by doing this on this schedule this this is a good thing in terms of the election nick thanks so much for joining us really appreciate you uh, jumping on with us uh, nick ackerman former assistant special watergate prosecutor giving us uh, his thoughts and analysis on what's been some a pretty busy uh news front this morning trading at schwab is now powered by ameritrade unlocking the power of thinkorswim the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Jess Metton, Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We are streaming uh, live on YouTube starting today. You can go... Uh, check that out. Um, Jess, you know, I, I've said it before, I'll say it again, you know, my next life, I want to come back as a yes. healthcare M&A banker because <laughs> there's just deals left and right. We've got another one today, Lily, to pay $2.4 yeah, $2. billion for immune drug developer Dice. Uh, breaking it down for us is our good friend Sam Vizelli. He's head of European research. He's also got a side hustle where he's presumably, reportedly, a pharmaceuticals <laughs> analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, so we'll, we'll check in with Sam. Sam, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, another deal here for Lilly. You know, your big pharma companies, I, I know they do a lot of R&D, Sam, but boy, they're really active on the M&A front buying uh, drugs and, and ther therapies. What are they getting here with DICE? Hey, Paul, um, just, just one comment before we go to DICE. <laughs> I think your life as a uh, media analyst <laughs> back in the days wasn't that bad, was it? No, it wasn't. <laughs> we, were, we, we, we had a good role there for a while. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> no, so um, DICE, um, uh, basically what Lily is doing here is that it's acquiring a, a, a novel therapeutic approach or novel uh, um, uh, drug development approach to treating uh, dermatological disease. In this particular case, I think the target's going to be psoriasis, uh, which I think a lot of people are familiar with, in which uh, Lily is already active. So they have a product called Tults. It's doing really well, and um, but it's coming off patent in twenty in the late twenties, let's say, um, and it does make sense for them to be backing into it uh, other products. And let's not forget a, a lot of pharma company products, um, thirty to fifty percent of them originate outside of the pharma company. You can't own 
every science, every new methodology for developing drugs, which is something that DICE has got a new approach to doing small molecule pill type drugs. So that's what I think we got, we're seeing and we continue to see. Sam, how are investors reacting to this? Because if you look at shares of DICE, that's ticker symbol D-I-C-E, up about 38% on Peace for its best day since October of last year. Looking at Eli Lilly, ticker symbol L-L-Y, up about 1%. Yeah, well, so, I mean, usually the acquirer, when they're doing such a small deal, let's not forget, Eli Lilly now, at least last time I checked, was the largest pharma company in the world. They overtook Johnson & Johnson, although I think they're vying for that position, like like who's the wealthiest man in the world kind of situation. <laughs> um, but the so really, what difference does it make to them? Yes, it changes a little bit the dynamics of, of potential uh, downside in their uh, immunology franchise, the psoriasis franchise seven years that down the road great planning but what really is driving the stock today is the excitement around as we all know obesity diabetes and alzheimer's disease so i'm I, this is not surprising to me the way the share prices have moved what is interesting is that the share price i'm just watching it now on my screen here for dice this company presented data for this drug way back in like nine months ago october last year and it's interesting that it's taken this long for them to be taken out and i have to also say it's not the biggest premium i've seen with recent deals so merck bought prometheus for around a 70 75 percent premium and the chinook was acquired or at least announced to be acquired by novartis just a few days ago last week um, for a 66% premium or 60-odd percent premium, depending on where you start. So this 38% premium is not the biggest we've seen. Um, and it does make me wonder how, why this, it took so long for somebody like Lily to actually close the deal. And perhaps they could have paid less. Who knows? Hey, Sam, talk to us about kind of that, that risk for patent expirations. I mean, I know you guys as analysts and investors, you probably follow that closely. Are there... Do you have a pretty good certainty when drugs come off patent and then when that revenue may be at risk? And are certain companies more vulnerable to that risk than, than others? Yeah, I think, Paul, it, it happens that sometimes some companies go through a wave of them um, and then others are pretty immune for a while to go yet. And I think uh, Lilly is one of those that's relatively immune. Pfizer, I think, has more exposure than others um, currently. But then, of course, they come and go and then they move on to a new base. And if with with patents, yes, it's relatively, relatively easy because you can get fantastic patent analysts like our own Old Gerspacher, who digs deep on these things to try and guesstimate when the patent expiry would come. What has muddied the water here, of course, is the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is saying that some of your drugs, especially these small molecules, these pills that I've been talking about, will be um, negotiated in terms of price to get them into a world that looks like as if they're becoming generic in terms of pricing way before the patent expires. And so that creates a uh, an extra layer of uncertainty, which is why I'm actually quite interested in this deal today because it is a small molecule deal, it is a pill, and it does fall into the IRA trap. Sam, with healthcare deal, deals on a tear this year, is this a sign of optimism in the M&A market? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the, um, if you think back to last year, interest rates pretty much close to zero. Uh, here and there was a deal. Now, these are not big numbers. Um, you know, $3 billion, what's that, to a $400 billion company. But it, but it does it's make me kind of chuckle a little bit when interest rates are shooting up, where you would think that M&A would be less likely, these companies are stepping in and doing the deals, which of course is telling you that they don't need the de any debt to do this. I mean, uh, Lily has very clearly said, we're just gonna finance this through our massive cash flow. <laughs> so what is happening though, is that I think they're coming to a point of thinking, more and more valuations are where they are they haven't moved very much they've taken their time and they're finding the assets that that they feel are the right quality for their pipelines hey sam as analysts and investors in these pharma companies does the market care whether uh you know the you know the lilies of the world the mercs of the world whether they develop their therapeutics and drugs internally via r d or they go out and buy it do you guys even care no, not really. At the end of the day, I mean, obviously, if the R&D engine of the company, they were spending $10 billion a year and they were getting nothing out of it, that's not a good thing. But let's not forget, this product isn't done yet. It still needs to go through what a lot of people don't 
uh, think about or contemplate is that it's not just about discovering a molecule. It's about then manufacturing it. Make sure you've got the right manufacturing footprint. Make sure you've got the right uh, package to go to the FDA, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of R&D that still needs to go in here that Lily will be spending on this product. Um, so, um, but I, nobody really cares as long as internal R&D, which is where the Munjaro drug, terzapatide, has come from, which is where their Alzheimer's drugs have come from, are delivering something. Any chatter of other companies that Eli Lilly might be potentially in the sort of looking here to see potential buying as far as what could potentially obviously continue this behemoth of a company that we've been seeing? Yeah, so I think the best way to figure that out um, is to look at the products that are facing competition in the longer term and look at what else is available in the biotech sector. So, you know, a lot of these deals are not coming into the mid-stage development companies. There was a time where everybody wanted uh, big, big revenue generators to basically do a little bit of financial engineering on that. But what we're seeing more, the names I, I, I read off to you, Chinook, Prometheus, this company, Dice, these are more mid-stage pipeline fillers, which are therefore going to be tied to what the company is either developing a new therapeutic franchise or it's got a drug like Tolts in the case of Lily that's going off patent. What you should really be looking for is to marry that with good data that comes out of the companies um, as they report them. Hey, Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. As always, Sam Fazelli, he's head of European Research. He's also the uh, senior pharmaceuticals analyst, one of the top analysts in the city of London. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Jess Mitten, Paul Sweeney here in the Interactive Brokers Studio, and we're going to change things up with a C-suite conversation with someone who I hear actually went to a school in Texas yes. as well. So I'm excited. Matt Rowe, Chief Revenue Officer at the auto lending enablement firm Open Lending. He's going to chat with us about the auto market, car loans, credit crunch, all things about that. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thanks, Paul and Jess. I have to get your thoughts when it comes to the auto space and with the backdrop, obviously, with the Federal Reserve and the direction of the economy. Are you noticing any sort of red flags pop up so far when it comes to auto lending? You know, I, I, not at this time. I mean, I think everybody is is curious and watching. You know, we, we've seen used car values over the last couple of years, you know, induced by the pandemic and the, the shortage of supply of vehicles drive car values to the highest we've ever seen. And we've seen the biggest drop last year in the Mannheim index on record. So I think, you know, cautiously watching what you use car values are doing and then uh, the ever looming, you know, recession that we may or may not be in um, has lenders thinking about, you know, from a strategy standpoint, you know, how can they still drive some growth, but not, you know, uh, avoid some of the risk that may be out there today. Hey, Matt, um, we may be in a recession or coming into a recession. People have been talking about it for more than a year. What are you seeing in terms of the credit quality of your portfolio? Uh, are, are your borrowers, are they, are, are they struggling? You know, so, so we tend to focus more on the near prime consumer. And what we have typically seen, even through the Great Recession, is that near prime consumers can weather, you know, economic storms better than, than prime consumers. And so, you know, from a, from a risk standpoint, we encourage you know, banks and, and any auto lender uh, to diversify their portfolio because, you know, again, typically, you know, what we saw in the in, in the, the Great Recession was that prime consumers um, defaulted at a much higher anticipated rate than the near prime consumers. So, you know, we have not seen anything out of the, the norm uh, as of yet as it relates to higher than expected delinquency at this point in time. But uh, it's something that we continue to monitor. Matt, do you guys lend directly to borrowers or do you provide financing for the dealerships? H how does your business model work? Yeah, so so we actually are a lending enablement platform solution that that allows uh, auto lenders to, to better assess risk at origination. So we work directly with the banks, credit unions, any auto lender on their near prime uh, auto lending strategy to help them price and, and assess risk better at the time of origination. Of that of that auto loan 
Something that struck me is the car shopping website Edmunds was talking about how the $1,000 auto loan payment is actually becoming more common and about 17% of people who bought new cars in the first three months of the year have an auto loan payment of about $1,000 wow. or more. How is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and how well, is that even sustainable? <laughs> yeah, it, it is pretty wild. I mean, I think, uh, you know, obviously a lot of that was driven by the shortage of, of, of car car vehicles out there. Right. So, I mean, when 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 the pandemic, you know, caused the the auto manufacturers to stop making new cars, um, the cars that were available, the price of those just obviously went up. So, you know, coupled that with, you know, rising interest rates over the last year, um, it's just exacerbated some of the affordability issues that the consumers are having out there today. So, so from a from a bank and a credit union standpoint, we advise them to take ways to to although payments have gone up, um, you know, how can they protect themselves from a risk standpoint of that of of that in, increased payment? But you know, a lot of times, you know, from a from a near prime consumer, you know, payment is everything. And so, as long as they're uh, assessing the collateral value and that residual value appropriately on the front end. It puts the bank and the, and the credit union in a better position to withstand some of this, some of these things that we are seeing, you know, as it relates to affordability in the economy. Hey, man, I seem to remember uh, in the news in the last several weeks, a bank or multiple banks just kind of pulling back from the auto lending business. What, do you, what are you seeing in the marketplace in terms of the number of lenders actually out there providing credit to this segment of the economy? You know, I think today, you know, I think what most banks and credit unions are, are trying to do from an asset liability management perspective is focus on shorter duration loans. Obviously, given what's happened with, you know, Silicon Valley banks collapse, you know, they 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 need to focus on lending to those consumers that you know have a greater value. So, are they um, achieving a return that exceeds their cost of capital because of what what's happened with interest rates? Obviously, everybody's cost of capital has gone up, and so you know maintaining balance sheets uh, is what's the most important things, and pricing those loans correctly. Um, you know, and it, it, that really ties back to using correct data and to be able to predict loan performance ahead of time, um, and, and ensuring that they're again hitting those yield targets um, that, that 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 they need to hit today. What indicator are you watching to see if more Americans are falling behind on their car loans? Yeah, so we, we obviously monitor 60-day uh, delinquencies uh, very closely. I mean, that is sort of the standard for any auto lender out there today in terms of monitoring risk. And, you know, is that, a, that that's kind of the leading indicator for, um, you know, what is my defaults or is this borrower's ability actually going to make their next payment. <laughs> um, and so I think that's that's obviously one that, that most of the industry watches just as a sort of the leading indicator for future losses. Hey, Matt, just about 30 seconds here. Just overall, cool. I mean, it looks like Detroit settled on this annual manufacturing figure of maybe 15 million vehicles per year versus maybe the 17 or 17 million plus before. Do you think that's a new normal? Uh, I, I think that it's it's a it's getting back to where we, I, I do think the 17 million a year is, is where we're going to get back to. I mean, you know, the, the auto manufacturers, you know, need to make cars. Um, and uh, so they're, they're going to do that. And I think what we're, we're seeing on the incentive side is that those incentives are coming back. Uh, and so that will drive uh, new car prices down as we've started to see that. I think we just saw the first time in a couple of years that the the average car sale for a new vehicle was below MSRP. So I, I, I do think we're going to get back to normal levels, pre-pandemic levels. All right, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate yeah. getting some of your thoughts there. Matt Rowe, he's the chief revenue officer for Open Lending. Open Lending provides, uh, you know, lending solutions for auto dealers. Uh, so really focusing in on that auto business. And that's one of the areas that economists say they really focus on to see some cracks in the consumer. So we'll continue to pay attention there. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading.
Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. What else can we continue to talk about, Paul? But obviously, the Federal Reserve with Fed Chair Jerome Powell going to Capitol Hill on Wednesday and Thursday. So I want to bring in our next guest, Danielle DiMartino Booth, who's the CEO and Chief Strategist at QI Research, joining us to, of course, talk about the Fed. Danielle, how are you? I'm doing great today. How are you? Doing well. So I want to get your take now that we got off the Fed decision last week and obviously going to hear from the man himself again this week. What were your expectations as far as going into this? And also, what was your sort of take now that we've gotten past the Fed decision last week? Well, from the perspective of a former Fed insider, to to say that it's exceedingly rare to see the Fed truly pause and then resume rate hikes, I will believe it when I see it, and I'm (laughs) happy to be corrected. And that's what the market is pricing in right now. But this is a highly unusual situation. Uh, But again, Markets are sitting at about 74% probability that there's another go come July, but there's a heck of a lot of data between now and then. Um, you know, starting off on the terminal this morning, you see that private equity firms are having a very hard time hedging, and at the same time, you know, used car loans are uh, upside down. This is a story that we would have read about in 2008, but about homes. But the average loan to value is 125% on used cars in the first three months of 2023, according to, to TransUnion. Clearly, the Fed's campaign has had an effect in many different places. It, it seems to me, Danielle, I mean, you, you're, you're the expert here, uh, having been uh, at the Dallas Fed, but it just feels like from a optics perspective, I wouldn't want, if I were on the Fed, I wouldn't want to pause and then just kind of restart next meeting. It sounds like I don't have much conviction one way or the other. Well, you know, it, it was interesting because Powell definitely threaded that needle in what he said at the podium. He said, the data that we have over a six-week period, that's much different than the data we have over a three-month period, which is more trend-like. So he was actually answering your question in advance, saying that by the time we get to the July meeting, we will have enough to establish whether or not the lag effect has created a trend in the data or whether it's a blip and we still have a lot more work to do on the inflation front. I was, uh, his answers were extremely choreographed and extremely careful. But he did make that distinction. Danielle, are you managing money? Uh, we advise institutional investors. So we, um, I think our most, our, our, what they thought was our craziest call was in June of 2021. We said that the yield curve would invert uh, to triple digit negative levels and stay there when the entire street was saying, no, no, we're going steeper, we're going steeper. We're of the mind right now that higher for longer is being reflected in the persistence of the negative inversion in the two-year tenure, which is pushing 100 basis points again today. How are you advising clients to position whether or not there's a couple more interest rate hikes or not? Well, what we're telling clients right now is that time is on their side. If you have the optionality of actually making a return on your cash right now, then there's absolutely nothing wrong with being uh, having a little bit of dry powder, having some cash on the sidelines. By the same token, we think that given what we're hearing about household finances and this aha moment in October when student loan payments resume, we think that a lot of the consumer discretionary uh, 
stocks and names and sectors have gone way, way over their skis right now on the assumption that everything's going to be fine and the Fed's going to ride right into the rescue with, with rate uh, cuts. We don't see that as happening, but yet we are seeing some severe uh, uh, distress emanating from the U.S. household sector. So, uh, again, I, I love to get further thoughts there, I mean, Danielle, because I'm not sure really how to handle or phrase or characterize this, this economy. How tough is it out there? I find myself you know, stuck here in New York, and if I go right. anywhere, it's San Francisco. But how is it out there? What's the data telling you? Well, the data, you know, actually, this week's Quill, I'm, I'm writing on big anic data because it's more of the anecdotes that you're hearing that tell the bigger story. We have to recall that it, it's, it's advertised on every medium known in, in financial media. The employee retention credit is pumping about $20 billion a month into the U.S. economy. That makes it really hard to tease out spending trends when the highest income earners are getting $20 billion a month from Uncle Sam in leftover CARES Act spending through the IRS. So that's a really big uh, swing factor, about $200 billion in the last three years or so, marginal increase to high net worth in- individuals, if you will. You parse that out. You know, there was, a, there was a documentary that aired a few months ago about a Phoenix uh, food bank, for example. The, the local TV station just revisited that same food bank, and prior volunteers at that food bank are now going to the food bank for food. So we, we're, we're seeing a turn. There's a huge bifurcation in the U.S. economy right now where the haves really have it and the haves not are mm. really struggling. But it's hard to pick up in the data. Right. In the bifurcation, just looking at some of the housing data this morning with housing starts surging the most since 2016. And so that's suggesting that residential construction could be on track to really help fuel economic growth. But to your point, how do you square some of that data away where you start to see some cracks with the consumer, even though we've seen other consumer data like retail sales still keep up? Well, we are seeing retail sales keep up, and we should, given we're seeing month after month of record uh, uptake on credit cards, as well as the extra $20 billion that I just said is being pumped into the economy via the the ERC tax credit. So um, we we should be seeing these numbers, given the amount of money that's being taken out and or given away by Uncle Sam. But when you see housing starts, uh, hat tip to Randy Woodward for, for pointing this out to me, when you see starts, at the, at the highest level compared to permits since the 1990s, there's something funky in the data, especially when we learned that $31.2 billion of residential loans saw a negative in the Fed's H8 on Friday after the close when everybody had long since left for the long weekend. So there's, from what I'm hearing from home builders and, 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 and from people who study the industry, right now builders are buying down points. So you're, you're, still borrowing in the 4% range if you're buying a new home. The assumption is that the Fed is going to lower interest rates, making it that much easier to push this spec supply out into into the housing market and for there to be people who can actually afford it. But again, a lot of people, whether you're talking about home builders or you're talking about individuals making loans, loan officers at banks, a lot of the decisions are being predicated on the assumption of Fed rate cuts going forward. So on that front there rate cuts i mean it keeps getting pushed out pushed out what is your call given the data right now well i don't uh if if any of you are star wars fans you know these aren't the droids (laughs) you're looking for when 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 powell was asked by politico.com about quantitative tightening he basically gave her that answer these are not the droids you're looking for we're not talking about the balance sheet it's going to continue to run off in the background now he can only do that if he maintains high interest rates you cannot cut interest rates and have quantitative tightening going on at the same time. They're, by definition, contradictory policies. So for him to keep shrinking that balance sheet, all he has to do is not hike anymore, just keep rates where they are. All right. Well, it was really great having you, Danielle, as far as just breaking down the Federal Reserve, all things Fed, ahead of Fed Chair Jerome Powell's testimony on Capitol Hill on Wednesday and Thursday. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me today. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
<laughs> All right, let's pivot over to Le Great Boondoggle over in Paris. That would be the Paris <laughs> Air Show. Um, they buy and sell airplanes there. Like, you know, we change socks. George Ferguson's over there. He's a senior aerospace and defense analyst. And it's so important that George is there. So we send him there every other year there. Then the odd year they go to London. George, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Boeing, Airbus, how's it playing out for those two big uh, aerospace companies? Uh, thanks for having me. It's, uh, I'd, say it's, I'd say it's playing out kind of weekly this, um, this year. Weekly as in W-E-A-K-L. <laughs> I think there's no E in there. Why? Um, you know, we've seen uh, a lot of the orders we've seen are really uh, wheels out of previous orders that were undisclosed. And so they, they disclose them at the air show and, you know, they try to get someone to put them in the tally. Um, Airbus started the show out with a 500 uh, airplane order from Indigo, the largest order ever, which was, that was pretty exciting. But I mean, when you, when you look at the order books right now, Indigo, uh, you know, the, the largest airline in India, fast grower, Indigo has 400 airplanes on order already. So I guess they'll add the 500 to that 400. Wow have about 900 airplanes on order. They said they're taking care of in the order book well into the next decade, it, it, which didn't surprise us. They took about 50 airplanes last year. So uh, I think they were looking to make a big splash. But, uh, you know, if you knock that order out, there's just not a, not a lot going on at the show. But don't tell my bosses because I want to come back. <laughs> what do these orders tell us about the trajectory of the global economy? You know, I, I think what they tell us is uh, and look, aerospace is one of the the last recovering areas of the global economy. And everyone we talk to over here, we ask the same question. How's your supply chain? How's your supply chain? How's your supply chain? And we're hearing stories from um, it's it's not getting any worse, but it isn't. But still, we still have a lot of problems. So we're getting, you know, incremental improvement. This industry isn't performing at the level it was performing before the pandemic. It's going to take them a bunch more years to get there. And so what that means is the backlogs are already large. They're already stretching into the next decade, especially for the, the Neo and the Max, right, the two narrow-body people movers. Um, and so I think you don't wait for the show if you had an order to place. You got it placed right away because you had to get in that backlog and hope that these uh, two uh, manufacturers figure out how to get more airplanes pumped through their factories. But they're still... So having supply chain problems, labor's the big issue. So, all right, I want to get to it. Like, what, what is the problem? I'm not hearing about semiconductor problems anywhere these days. Uh, you know, it feels, I haven't heard it from the auto guys in, in a while. So what really for, for aerospace, I, I understand it's long lead time and it's, you know, building the planes, a pretty big deal. But what are the supply chains and, and kind of, is there any fix out there? You know, it's really hard, I think, for aerospace because, like I said, the big problem is labor, labor, mm. labor. And it's not just hiring labor, right? This is sophisticated manufacturing. You have to hire it, train it, and get it to perform at the level it performed pre-pandemic. All of this in the backdrop of, an, of a global economy where during the pandemic, people learned to work from home, liked it, yep. want the quality of life. And so now you, you say to yourself, do I want to go back to my aerospace job? i got to go there five days a week. My neighbor's going in three days a week and <laughs> sleeping in at 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm not taking that job. I'm going to go into tech or something like that. Wow. So especially when it comes to pilot pay, that has been a particular issue, right? Yes, absolutely. The funny thing, too, is the pilots, even in their agreement, they wanted quality of life issues, and I was like, "Wow, or you gotta, you gotta get in the cockpit, and fly the plane." But uh, U.S. pilots, especially, uh, I, guess, I think they're gonna have a really good year, right? Delta has already signed an agreement with their pilots, eighteen percent immediately, retroactive to the beginning of the year, five more percent uh, in pay at the end of the year, and then I think it's another five, four, and four in the out years. Um, so if you want the school to be a pilot, you, yep. you know, your ship has come in. <laughs> your ship has come in. So, George, <laughs> over there in Paris, I know it's always a fight and, you know, between Boeing and, and Airbus. But I, I want to talk about kind of talk about the, the big jets that I like, the big wide body jets, you know, the old 747s or even the, you know, the triple sevens and all that kind of stuff. The, uh, the Airbus three, I don't know, was it 380, this monsters? Are they even going to be making those things anymore? Is it all, like you said, the people movers, the, the smaller planes? You know, so what we saw during the pandemic is that the big four-engine uh, airplanes, the 380 and the 747, 
they were sunset. So um, they're done with the 7.4. I think we're fully done with the 380. There might be one or two coming off the line still, but they're done. Um, the, the two big the wide bodies that are going to rule the day, I think, you know, post-pandemic, are going to be the 787 and the A350. And we've seen orders for those airplanes here at the show. Long-haul travel has taken a little bit longer to come back. Uh, China's still not sort of wide open. There's not much capacity going in and out of there from Europe and the U.S., um, you know, long-haul capacity. So that's kind of slowed down that recovery. I still think there's some willing to dealing, dealing to do here at the show on wide bodies because that's one of the areas of the backlogs, the, you know, the 350 and the 787 that Boeing and Airbus would like to grow. They want to build, um, they want to build more rate on that. They could make, they could be more profitable if they build more per month. And so I think there's probably some wheeling and dealing to be done. Maybe last minute dinners tonight, you know, to try to coerce people to buy $130 million jets, you know. All right. You flew over to Paris. I'm guessing you went business. How was it in terms of was it sold out? Tell, tell us about the flight and kind of what you learned. Yeah, I mean, uh, flight was uh, pretty full. Is United flight on a 777, that big steel that, that you like. Yep. And those will continue to remain in, in, uh, um, you know, in production. I think their heyday, that they will come back and have a heyday again because they'll be the biggest people movers. But, but the, the, the flight was full. Uh, you know, I think this year is going to be uh, pretty busy uh, when it comes to this summer, when it comes to uh, European travel, there's a lot of bounce back. Uh, you know, here in Paris, we have you can see a lot of Americans on the streets. Not, not a lot of uh, Asians. You know, not a lot of Chinese and Koreans and J- Japanese from other times I've been here. A lot, a lot more Americans, a dollar strong. Uh, so they're filling airplanes, and they're all, you know, they're trying to get that revenge travel, and they got to go back to Paris two or three more times since they had to go through a pandemic, and so they're, you know, they're full. They're in the airplanes. George, we only have 30 seconds left. When do you think corporate travel will return to its pre-pandemic levels? Yeah, so our last look, it was 70% back. I think we uh, got to get back to a world where people are going to the office five days a week, and it's uh, maybe not so much quality of life. <laughs> exactly. That's coming from a former Army officer. You know, quality of life. Get back to work. Um, George Ferguson, thank you so much. We appreciate it. As always, George Ferguson, he covers the global aerospace industry, the airline business. And as I mentioned, uh, he is a, a veteran of the U.S. Army. So we, uh, of course, thank him for his service. But again, you know, when I was working with George, I'd see this request come in. Oh, I got to go to Paris for the Paris Air Show or next year. I need to yeah. go to London for the foreign But I'm like, really? You got to go? He says, yeah, this is where it all happens. You know, and then here he, there he is. Yeah, there. I mean, and, <laughs> I mean it they just, it's amazing the, the, you know, the amount of money that gets committed uh, at those air shows. Uh, just huge orders from uh, airlines. And he was mentioning Indigo, uh, talking about a fast growth market uh, of India. So that's interesting to, to learn. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Jess Mitten and Paul Sweeney here in the Interactive Broker Studio. And Paul and I, we were just talking about that Kava IPO last week that debuted. It actually ended up being the sixth largest IPO of the year after it raised $317 million at around a 200, actually a $2.5 billion valuation. But once you saw that open up, Paul, obviously closer to a $5 billion valuation and ending being up to about $42 per share. Now it's trading around 38. But who better to bring in to chat about this IPO as well as what the outlook is when it comes to the IPO market? Uh, Brianne Lynch, who's the head of market insight at Equity Zen. Brianne, talk to us about this IPO last week and what you think this means as far as what the trajectory is for the IPO market moving forward this year or next year. Thanks for having me. Um, I think the IPO market was really seeing the benefits of the Mediterranean diet. As you said, the Kava IPO traded up 92% on its first day and holding on to that IPO pop. And I think they've set a really strong example for what a company needs to show to have a successful IPO. So 
public market investors are looking for companies generating significant revenue. So Kava generating over 500 million, and then also a mix of growth and profitability. So they stated how the majority of their IPO proceeds would go to opening more stores. And while they're not profitable, they have strong unit economics and they're on a near-term path to that. So they've kind of laid out the path for the boxes other companies will need to check as well. So uh, Brianne, I mean, you know, the S&P 500 is up you know, a, a good chunk this year, 10, 11, 12%. Why haven't we seen more deals? Because the deals we've seen, Kenview, Kava, have been wildly successful. And I, there's got to be a, a, you know, a, a, a backlog, that, you know, is incredibly huge now for most of these underwriters, I would think. Absolutely. You have globally over 1,200 unicorn companies. So these are private companies valued at over a billion dollars, many that are sitting on the sidelines and we're waiting for the market to turn around. So while the market's down a bit today, the S&P is at a 14-month high. The VIX is at its lowest level since February of 2020. And as you said, we've seen a few successful IPOs. So I think companies who have strong business fundamentals and have put the right hires in place uh, really should start to think about capitalizing on this market opportunity. And Paul and I were actually just talking about a story Alina Papina did on our U.S. equities team about how Goldman Sachs was saying the IPO bus looks like it's ready to boom once again, looking at that data. Do you think that is when you're seeing a call like that from Goldman Sachs that you'll see more firms kind of jump in and join that kind of call? I think it's certainly encouraging and there's a lot of pent up demand both for liquidity from early employees and shareholders of these companies who have been waiting 10, 15 years for an IPO, uh, but then also for investor access. I think there is this desire to participate in innovation and growth and with companies staying private longer, that's happening in the private market. So once these growing companies do make their public market debut, I think they will be warm received, will be received warmly. Um, so I would say that like the Goldman report is painting the right picture. So the last 18 months have been the slowest initial public offering market really since a great financial crisis. Um, I guess I'm just wondering what the catalyst is going to be here. Um, uh, Brienne, because it, it it feels like, you know, just by judging by recent deals, I'd be hitting a market right here. I'm not sure why pe people are waiting. We're starting to see more companies confidentially file or, you know, make the indications that they're preparing for an IPO. So maybe hiring a new head of investor relations, hiring a new CFO. Um, but there are companies, you know, who are in the process that I think public market investors will be excited about. Arm is one. This is the British SoftBank-backed mm. microchip company uh, that tried to merge with NVIDIA last year. Um, that didn't work out for regulatory reasons, uh, but they were looking at a $40 billion valuation at that time, and they've confidentially filed for a US IPO. They're looking to raise eight to 10 billion. So I think that's an exciting one that we'll see coming down the pipe at some point this year. Um, and more of these examples will kind of, you know, give that nudge to additional companies to test the markets. To Paul's point, talking about the IPO market, especially last year, it was facing its worst year in about two decades, just given the backdrop of inflation and then higher interest rates. How does the Federal Reserve and their interest rate path play into this as far as if they're getting close to this peak point here, what that means for the trajectory of the IPO market? Yeah, we saw that rate increases have slowed down. So I think that's a positive. It's showing that inflation um, is getting a bit more under control. Um, and I, there will be likely future rate hikes, um, but there's a little less uncertainty around that. Um, but I think it really uh, beckons to the point of investor interest in growth. So they want, uh, you know, large growth opportunities um, and the ability to really capitalize on greater returns, um, you know, in a higher interest rate environment where your cash could be making more. So, uh, Brianna, so are there any industries that the market might be more receptive to right now? Because I'm just thinking Kava was a restaurant business. Uh, Kenview was healthcare. care. Um, I mean, these aren't like the super sexiest things like technology or something. <laughs> so what, what are you hearing from the bankers in terms of what industries might be, you know, most receptive of? By, by the public. Yeah, so in the private markets, we're seeing a few sectors with the greatest 
investor interest. Uh, those are AI and machine learning companies, yep. not surprisingly. Uh, FinTech is generating a lot of interest and then software as a service businesses as well. So those are some categories to think about um, where there may be public market interest as well uh, for the right candidates to go public. But that's what we're seeing in the private markets at EquityZen. What are the next IPOs that are on your radar? Yeah, Arm is one I mentioned um, that I think could be interesting. Uh, Sheen is another one, the Chinese fast fashion retailer. Uh, they just raised uh, more capital at a down round just earlier this year uh, after raising at uh, you know a very aggressive $100 billion valuation back in April of 2021. Uh, but this is a profitable, fast-growing company. Um, with a global market that has said that they're looking to IPO later this year. So I think that's another one people will have their eye on. You know, you bring up a good point here. Um, just wondering about the types of names that could come public here. And valuation's a, a, a big issue here because I can, I can imagine me being an IPO banker going in with a valuation that would represent a down round for a lot of these companies. And that's a problem. So are we seeing that in the market? Yeah, I think it's just a reality of, where we are, where companies raised capital at these aggressive valuations in 2020 and 2021. And on EquityZen's platform, we're seeing the average company trading at a 40 to 50% uh, discount to that last primary round, reflecting, or reflecting that correction in the market. Um, so I think some companies may choose to raise additional primary capital as a means of also resetting their valuation before they go to IPO. Um, others may rip off the Band-Aid and understand that they may be uh, you know, raising at a lower valuation in an IPO. Uh, so it, it's different paths that different companies will take, um, but I think ultimately they need to come up with a solution, um, you know, both for liquidity and broader access. Hey, Brianne, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate getting a few minutes of your time. Brianne Lynch, head of Market Insight at Equity Zen. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Lots going on in terms of global uh, geopolitics, if you will. M Mick Mulroy joins us. He's co-founder of the Lobo Institute. Uh, former senior fellow at Middle East Initiative, former deputy assistant secretary of defense for the Middle East at the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, and also he is a uh, former U.S. Marine Infantry officer. So we thank him for his service. Uh, hey, Mick, there's a lot to talk about here. We, we appreciate getting some more of your time. Let's start with China and Secretary of State Blinken. How would you kind of characterize that visit, the success or, or, or lack thereof? So great to be with you. I think uh, right now we can say it's somewhere in between. Um, it's good that it happened. Uh, it's important that the superpowers of the world, particularly those with nuclear weapons, are talking and not uh, and not uh, going more toward the potential for a conflict. Uh, but one of the main things that we wanted to do here was to get military-to-military -military communications uh, back started. That's something that during the entirety of the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union did. Uh, mostly because we wanted to avoid a, a misinterpretation that led to an engagement that could lead to a conflict. So that's why I think Secretary Blinken has been so emphatic about that, and it looks like that did not happen. But they did have agreement to carry on and have another engagement between the foreign minister and our secretary of state and potentially have our presidents meet at, say, the G20. Uh, so it, it wasn't a failure, but it wasn't what we needed, which was to make sure that our militaries uh, have the ability to talk to one another to avoid an escalation that neither country would want. Mick, there were reports earlier this year that the U.S. was planning to increase the number of U.S. troops training Taiwanese forces, uh, not confirmed, though, obviously, by the government. Have we gotten a in new indication on that front from his visit this week? So it, one of the things that I think has irritated China so much is that we have new agreements with the Philippines, for example, to put four new uh, or four bases where U.S. military will be, uh, what the Marine Corps is doing with the littoral regiment. And now, to your point, that we are actively increasing the number of trainers in Taiwan. 
Um, that is in our interest. It's in the interest of our allies in the region. Uh, but it's obviously something that, that China doesn't want to see if they still have a design on uh, taking Taiwan. Uh, so that's going to be a tension. I don't think we could have 100 uh, diplomatic engagements and we're never going to see eye to eye on the issue of Taiwan. Uh, but it is something that we need to address and and then focus on the areas where the United States and China do have an interest, which is largely economics. Our, our economies are tied. I'm not an economist, but I think I know I can say that. And it's important that we focus on those areas, understanding that there's certain areas that we'll never agree on. All right, Mick, let's uh, switch gears because I know we can do that with you. Uh, Ukraine, I guess I guess the counteroffensive is, is underway. If it is, kind of how would you characterize it and what are your thoughts given that situation over there? So I would, I would characterize it as smart from the Ukrainian perspective. Um, they could have... Uh, they could have gone all in, uh, and they could have had a catastrophic failure. What I think they've done is they've probed the Russian line. They've retaken some territory, I think around 114 uh, square kilometers right now, about eight towns. Uh, but they haven't committed the bulk, the mass of their force, because they're really trying to find out where the Russians are most vulnerable and then exploit it to a point where it puts them so much on their back foot that they can start regaining uh, a lot of territory. So I think it is going where the Ukrainians expected it to, maybe not what everybody expected it would be a, a more massive uh, attack, uh, acts of attack, but I think they're doing it the right way because they have, they have skill, they have the better equipment, but they also have a problem that they don't have as many uh, soldiers. So they have to be very uh, cautious on where they, where they uh, send those soldiers and try to find the vulnerabilities, the gaps and teams, if you will, in the Russian defenses. So I think this is going to be something that builds rather than a big, big bang at the beginning. What is it going to take to get Russia out of Ukraine? It's going to be tough. Uh, I think what the Ukrainians are trying to do is get to a point where they challenge their ability to maintain their presence in Crimea, something they had thought they had already gotten. They'd done it in 2014. They never thought that that would be challenged. And it is very uh, strategically important to them. If the Ukrainians can get to a point where they challenge their ability to stay there, that's why they're trying to cut off the land bridge uh, by pushing all the way through uh, Zaporizhia to be able to cut them off. The only way they can get to Crimea after that is that bridge, which is vulnerable. But if they get to that point, perhaps there'll be a time they can negotiate. I don't know if the Ukrainians would be willing to give seed any territory, including Crimea, but Russia might get to a point where they realize that they might lose Crimea, something they never thought would happen when they launched this invasion. Mick, how important or critical are fighter jets for Ukraine? Are they a game changer or not so much? So I think they, with all the other... Um, items that they've gotten, you know, from the M1 tanks, the other main battle tanks, the infantry fighting vehicles. This is just one more piece of the puzzle that's going to give them the ability to go on the offensive and to the point where they can uh, take back key terrain. F-16s, they're good in the air. They can, they can knock um, incoming missiles. They can knock enemy fighters, but they can also do close air support, and that's something desperately needed when you're trying to attack fortified positions in which the Russians have been in for so long uh, developing. So game changer, close to it. Uh, but I think the game changers of all the things that we've, we've given recently that are really giving them the ability to do this counteroffensive in a way that could be really meaningful, that really put Russia in a position where they might not be able to stay uh, stay in the, in, the, in the positions that they had occupied for so long. Mick, we only have about 30 seconds left, but have to get your take about this Titanic vessel. What, what do you think is going to happen there? Well, I certainly hope that we can get out and find these individuals and rescue them. It's obviously, you know, thoughts in, uh, to the, them and their family, uh, but it's going to be difficult. I mean, they, they're going to have to find, uh, if you think about it, look how long it took to find the Titanic itself. Well, the Titanic is 900 feet long. How long is the Titan? That's the name of the submersible end. It's 20 feet long. So they're going to have to figure out where it was, which is difficult because it doesn't have any communications. Yep. 
and then they're going to have to get all the way down there and figure out how to yeah. tether it to the, another submersible and bring right. it to the surface. Let's hope they can do it, um, but it is yep. not going to be easy. It's going to be a challenge. All right, Mick, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Mick Mulroy, co-founder of the Lobo Institute, uh, getting his thoughts on some geopolitical issues. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.